0: Popularity. What is it made of? How does a person get to be popular with lots of people and have a few close friends, too? Let's watch and see what makes people like one person and not another. Welcome everyone to American Girls the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Wow. You know, Allison, like we just heard a really wild excerpt from a, you know, hygiene film from Yesteryear about friendship thoughts.
1: I wanted to go deep into the archive to see what would await Molly in her teen years. And then I very quickly turned the car around because I don't <laughs> want to live in that space and and question, would you be popular? I don't I mean, would you? You know, I'm going to tell you the truth. I don't think I would be popular in 1947. I do think we both look good in a sweater set.
0: Yes. Yeah. And I still wear saddle shoes to this day. So I feel like if that was a requirement, I could meet that. But I don't really know that I would be popular in the 1950s.
1: I do also think Greece, being such a big cultural product of our life, all of those men are 40 like I just feel like that you can't I've like yeah (laughs) I can't
0: like literally the only thing in my life I've ever been told by my parents you may not watch this or like consume this is Greece. like if you remember like when Greece had a renaissance at some point it was like some anniversary of it when we were growing up and it was on VH1 all the time and my parents were like absolutely not you will never watch Greece because it has a really bad message about a good girl who goes bad to like get the boy little did my parents know like that was not going to be relevant content to me (laughs) however I I went to my neighbor's house and I was like, we need to watch Grease right now. We watched it. And I just was like, so disappointed because I was like, John Travolta looks like he's 40 if he's a day. Like, it's so distracting. Wow.
1: I also think there are so many layers to the plot lines that if you're sort of an innocent viewer, you literally just don't grasp what they're actually saying. Like I think there's so much innuendo and double talk that I think when I watched it as a very young person, none of it processed. And then when I watched it slightly older, then I it was actually more inappropriate because I understood it.
0: I think that's real. I think I also saw Grease 2 not long after I saw Grease One. And it is the superior film. Like we don't have time to cover that in this show. But (laughs) you know, you know, it's Michelle Pfeiffer's greatest film to this day. I just recently heard someone say it's a shame that her husband is such a prolific TV producer and she's never been the central star of one of his shows. And it must be because like she doesn't want that, which fine. But maybe it's because she's seen Grease 2 and she's like, I peaked.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Okay, thank you. I mean...
1: I also think, you know, we are living in a John Travolta Scientology world, but you and I were going through a path, I will say, with the Bee Gees in the past week, and honestly had my world rocked by the truth of their life story and learning. Honestly, I had no idea what a cultural phenomenon Saturday Night Fever was, And part of what I loved about that, someday we will get to star in a documentary about Valerie Tripp and we will get to be the stars and the talking heads where we talk about how we've speculated about her process. Watching people talk about how they come up with music is so cool to me because it doesn't happen to my brain. and. For an example, the Bee Gees were going over this bridge over and over in Florida and there was a clicking and we've all kind of experienced this. And that was the inspiration for part of how they constructed a whole new sound that led into dive talking that's amazing to me.
0: It's amazing. It's not unlike not to bring Dolly Parton into this conversation. But when she was on the set of nine to five, her fake nails, like she would go like this and like click Mm. them against each other. I don't have fake nails. So it's not working for me. But and that's how she came up with the rhythm for the song that then became nine to five. And I'm like, she's unreal. But like they are so and what's so crazy, too. I also love a process story, Allison. But hearing them (laughs) talk about their process where it's like, You know, some songwriters are like, I have to do some navel gazing, like I'm reading poetry, like I'm journaling. They literally would show up at the studio and all get in a room together and be like, I don't know, like, guess we need some lyrics. Like, where's your head at, Barry? It's a lot.
1: I, you know, because again, these things don't happen to my brain. So I also just love hearing people say things like, well, you know, I heard my nails clicking or I heard the bridge clicking to me. That's the equivalent of saying like, well, you know, like Van Gogh tripped over a globe at some point and then made starry night. Like you're explaining it, but I don't understand how those Got things <laughs> are connected. And I think that's super cool because you You know, we have all sorts of people who create different things. The way that the neurons fire in their brain will never happen for me. And that's why I love to watch it.
0: Well, I think, you know, what you're getting at is kind of how we understand the imagination and i think if you actually think about the imagination as a historical object of study it's so incredibly understudied there's still so much we don't understand about how people thought about the imagination in the imagination in the past and now and i'm wondering like songwriting and creating an artistic work that seems to be a perfect lens to sort of get into it because so many people mm. self-narrate how they make things like they have to tell a process story So it would be really interesting to kind of look and see if there have been studies of that from a medical standpoint, you know, kind of like when they throw people now in MRI machines and are like, have an idea. It's like, does that happen? (laughs) I don't know.
1: If you hooked up these authors to an MRI machine, like would an American Girl catalog just come out?
0: Us? I don't, I would be terrified. Like no one should ever hook me up to an MRI machine for that purpose. Like Please, like, lock the door, throw away the key. It's just, like, our plan to have someone destroy our Gmail should we ever be taken out (laughs) at the same time. Like, But to get back to the BG documentary for a second, because I do think it is really worth checking out if you have access to it. Something that was actually in the same way that for you, like, the story of inspiration was really new and interesting was, like, for me, talking about the protest of disco that happens mm. at towards the end of their kind of the, the, the high of the Saturday night fever soundtrack, they're on tour and, you know, like it's impossible for us to probably conceive of how popular they were because the way people consume music and the metrics were, it have changed so much, but You know, they're on tour and whatever, and there's, like, immediately already this backlash to disco. And the BJs never self-identified as a disco group because to them they were just sort of, like, as you say, following your inspiration. And they dreamed up this whole new way of, like, this whole new sound of, like, Barry Gibbs falsetto and whatever. And it worked with disco, so obviously, like, they were very successful. But there's this backlash, and there's a very famous protest where they blow up a bunch of disco records at Kaminsky Park. And they cover this, and I've heard about this before and read about it, but they have really amazing talking heads in this documentary who basically say, if you looked, there was someone who, uh, a black man who was working at the park that night, Mm. and you were asked to bring a record with you to have blown up, a disco record. And he was like, if you actually looked at the records people were bringing, it was like Marvin Gaye records which are not disco records, but obviously like a record by a person of color. And so he actually offers this reframing of that event as like a racist and homophobic event, not so much about sort of like air quotes, harmless protest of a musical genre people didn't always like.
1: I mean, watching that documentary and seeing people and there you can see the signs saying, stay in your seats, don't get up right they're They're being cautioned to stay where they are. And I think they do a good job of framing it as essentially a white mob is out of control and that is taking over a space, which obviously has no relevance to our world today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I know. I was actually like wanting to rewatch that part of the documentary after. So we're recording this on January 7th. So yesterday was the um, white supremacist riot insurrection in our capital And in many ways, like the optics of that event resemble, you know, as you're saying, this event about disco, which is being was framed, you know, decades after is like, oh, it's just this playful, harmful, harmless Mm. event. Like, oh, people just didn't like disco in the same ways that, you know, what's really driving the events yesterday has already been obscured by so much of the media.
1: Yeah. And I think we, we were also talking a bit about the Bee Gees because where they're from, I think also points to elements of Molly's story, but there's a a framing or a way that people are thinking about a lot of events that have happened in American history as, you know, quote, we are better than this, or they are better than this, or is this who we are? Um, And that's also a TikTok audio. Is this is this who we are but i think in in you know in all seriousness i think part of why telling the truth about things that have happened and also looking critically at echoes Isle of Man, which is where the Bee Gees are from, is where people were interned by the English government in the 1940s. And in our own country, people still have a hard time grappling with the fact that FDR was interning some of his own citizens Mm -hmm. in the United States. So I know those things don't seem related, but I think when people see a white supremacist backlash and act like it's a break in a chain as opposed to a, a line of continuity, The BGs, the insurrection, like all these things actually do come together. And I think part of what we're interested in with talking about Molly's birthday party, sorry, (laughs) sorry, Molly, is like, where do you learn American exceptionalism and who does it stick with and for whom is it going to repel off, right?
0: Right. And for whom is amnesia, historic amnesia, a privilege and not a right? So for folks running around saying this isn't who we are, you get to sort of cling to this purposeful amnesia that makes you feel better about the kind of version of American exceptionalism that you've taken on and and probably grown up with. But as many folks have said yesterday and today, like in many ways, this is exactly who we are and this is what our history has prepared us for is exactly this moment. So, and how we reckon with it is, is what will be, um, will define us, not kind of how we talk about American exceptionalism or claim it. Um, yeah so i mean poor molly what a birthday party we're throwing you i mean in some ways the theme of her party is international incident and we'll get into that but like
1: (laughs) yes this book is
0: truly not kidding one of the craziest american girl books i've ever read
1: no i do feel like i don't think we're prone to hyperbole i do think we're prone to (laughs) strong statements and you know strong feelings in all seriousness, we always talk off air about what we're going to talk about. There was a lot of all caps. There was a lot of concern. This,
0: <sighs> yeah. So,
1: and this is the first 1987 book that we've talked about in a while. So that's exciting because it's my birth year. Thank you, Valerie. Wow. She
0: went all out. What a gift. Val, it was like, this was like a lights out, truly lights out performance. And like, this is like, if you believe in Val Trip exceptionalism, like that's this book. It's like, she's bringing all the best of herself to her efforts here to the point that I'm up at, you know, one o'clock in the morning, casually (laughs) Googling, can I bring puppies on a plane in 1944 or 45, depending on how long she stays with us here. But it's like... What was this book, honestly? Yeah. I feel like we have to get into it.
1: Let's do it.
0: This episode is brought to you by Podcorn.
1: Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships.
0: What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously. So we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well.
1: If you're a creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn.
0: That's right. So just head over to Podcorn.com and get started today.
1: I'm going to give us the publisher's summary, which is always a joy to deliver. There's exclamation points there. Well, you know, this this one is quite good, written by the folks at Scholastic. An English girl is coming to stay at the McIntyres and just in time for Molly's birthday, exclamation point. Molly and her friends are quite excited until Emily Bennett turns out to be quite different from the glamorous girl they pictured. There's a war on, but Emily is shy and seems unfriendly. Then Molly discovers that Emily is worried about her family in war-torn London. Never could have guessed that. Never (laughs) could have guessed that. Just as Molly is worried about her father, and the girls become good friends. They even plan to turn Molly's 10th birthday celebration into a real English tea party. But the girls' friendship starts to fall apart when they can't agree about what's important, and it takes a special birthday surprise to help them patch up their hurt feelings
0: it's like absolutely no summary could contain this book. Absolutely no summary. I need to make two points right off the dome. <laughs> Point one, and this is kind of for everyone, and this is a timeless statement, joint birthday parties never work.
1: Oh, I feel the opposite. That's interesting. No,
0: they never work. And it, maybe it's because I'm a Leo and it's like I needed to be about me. Like I'm going to practice some self-awareness right now. But like, I'm just going to tell you, I knew that was not going to work from the moment they were like, let's share a birthday party.
1: Okay. Okay. Why do you feel differently? So I am actually very happy to be four days apart from my brother and now just one day apart from my niece, his daughter. And I can't wait until we have a three-way birthday party. Okay. So we always shared as young people and... I I will say, to be fair, I think he was less thrilled that his sister was born four days after his birthday, yep. but I loved it. And I think we have some really funny pictures because we're, we have an age gap. So he was getting teenage boy things and I was getting things that I wanted, like Barbies and American Girl dolls. So all around the family table, we'd have two ice cream cakes and then these wildly divergent gifts. So I loved it.
0: See, I come from a different background, which is that my brother Rick and I are 11 months apart. So he was born on August 28th, 1985. I was born the following July 31st. So from my birthday to Rick's birthday, we're the same age. And it's like, you kind of need to like move off my date. (laughs) Like, this is (laughs) my time. Like, what are you doing? And my parents would be like, wouldn't it be cool if we had like a joint birthday party? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, nobody wants that.
1: I, I I think that's fair. And I also think there's always one who wants it and one who doesn't. And that is also true in this book. I think that's true. Yeah.
0: I mean, I don't even know how to get into this book, except that we can kind of start at the beginning here. And I'll just say before we even get into the text, you know, I need to report a crime that's been committed, Allison. And, you know, it does take place. I'm grabbing my copy, Um you know what on the portrait page well (laughs) you know there have been some changes indeed and every single person in this book has been granted a visual downgrade from their portraits in previous books please do not tag whoever the artist here who did this it's a different artist i think keith perhaps look at dad allison
1: look at dad that's tie is slipping over the frame. What that's does that not mean? even
0: That's not even half of it, Allison. Okay. It's like this man has now crow's feet. This man has, his hat is casting a weird shadow over most of his face. We're getting him at a weird angle. Like there's just, it's just, there's a lot. Like this man is already serving in a war zone. Like he didn't need this. Molly's portrait, no comment. Like it's like flip from the cover to that
1: going to say something controversial Emily Linda and Susan could all be triplets there's not a lot of creative range there and I can't draw I'm not judging that I'm saying I think on purpose they all look very homogenous
0: I don't think at this stage of the game I can claim that I'm not judging because that's kind of what I've been doing (laughs) from the jump here but like there has not been a consultation if Molly was missing and I had to work with a sketch artist and somebody presented me with Molly in the vignettes and Molly in the cover I'd be like these are two different pe- children. Like, we're never going to find her. These are two different girls. No.
1: I also have what I think is a crime. So I think something that's interesting and very revealing about this summary is this idea that they both have hurt feelings, right? That both of these girls are kind of going into this party and we'll get into why there are hurt feelings. But basically Molly goes on a campaign to convince everyone that Emily isn't as cool or interesting as she should be as a scared refugee. Who's been sent to a new home where she knows no one or nothing. And Molly can't take any criticism or any feedback and blows up over it. And then this notion that they're coming into the party as like equally hurt, I think is not true. That said, the real crime, Emily Bennett, I don't know why they needed to go this hard on the American Girl fandom website. Emily Bennett is the third best friend character, semicolon. She is the friend of Molly McIntyre however molly has two best friends and emily is not really a best friend oh my
0: god this girl has lost enough like my god why are they doing this why are they doing this
1: she is marketed as molly's english friend and that's all in quotes so when molly's collection got archived going on eight years ago She, Bennett, and others were all put into the stash. Um, You can still get the books and you can still get the movie related to Molly and Emily, but you can't actually get her. I do want to say thank you. I have an Emily courtesy of my friend Emily, and she's very cute. That said, I learned that in the supplemental Brave Emily you learn more that Emily's father is a doctor, which I feel like they made up after, but that's part of how she got put with Molly.
0: There's just, there's so much. There's a kind of foreignness that gets, like, um, fetishized by Molly from, like, the first page of the book (laughs) where we meet her, where her two friends are walking down the street, and in showing how truly extra she is, they're walking towards her, and she's like, hurry up! And she, like, makes them sprint to her so she can share that she's now going to have an English friend come live with her. It's very extra, but and it's sort of like they're sort of imagining like, oh, I wonder if they'll be like, she'll be like Princess Margaret and Princess Elizabeth, and we'll get into that. But you know, that's her frame of reference. Like, will she be like these two youngish royals who I'm who I'm idolizing? It's a very difficult entry to the book because Molly is fueling her own rumor mill where she's saying. (laughs) Maybe her house was just bombed by the Nazis and she's probably raggy and starving like the Children in Life magazine picture, says Susan. And it's like, have any of you ever thought about like what's realistically going on there? They're like, I really hope a caricature walks right through the door.
1: Yeah, the way that Molly so very clearly explains to her new friend all the ways in which she is not meeting her expectations is pretty staggering. Oh my God. Well, we I should talk about how they first meet. Yes. Yes. Please, please get into that, because I think it's a great moment. So right after they
0: Molly's in the street, literally saying, like, I hope I'm getting a princess, basically, or like, I hope she fulfills every like weird fantasy I have about what British children are like. They go inside. They go downstairs to play their new favorite game, bomb shelter, in which they've put a blanket over a card table and they're like huddling underneath it as their secret hideout next to dad's workbench. Molly's mom, like, calls and is like, she's here. And she goes upstairs. First of all, her read of Emily's physical appearance is so ridiculous where she's like, obviously, she's a starving English girl. This is on page 11. Emily was the skinniest girl Molly had ever seen. Her knee socks were twisted and saggy around her legs, which were as thin as spaghetti noodles. Even her hair was skinny. It was gingery red and absolutely straight, cut short. Her eyes were pale blue. Her skin was pale, too, as if it had not been outside in the sunshine for a very long while.
1: Yeah, and so Molly gets this visual, and her first thought is, group play, bomb shelter. That's, That's,
0: you know, a great welcoming activity.
1: Also, Mrs. M, ever the indulgent, says, not everybody is a chatterbox like you are, Ollie Molly. She's her fave. Like, there's just no way around it. There's no question english children are taught to be reserved to be very polite and quiet and then molly who you know there's a whole motif on the next page about flowers we got a little narcissus action it seems as if she doesn't like us said molly she won't smile or anything and she wouldn't play in the bomb shelter either this is where mrs m steps up the parenting like as if she doesn't have enough going on give emily a chance remember bomb shelters haven't been places for her to play.
0: Oh my God.
1: And I think like, if you're a parent and you have to say that sentence, like I think there are some other things to think about where I do want to call out, because I think this book probably the most reminded me of Felicity and the way that we loved a lot of the unpacking and the visuals and Felicity. And I think the introduction of good, really good writing, um, Then her mother kind of explains that Emily might be like a crocus that hasn't opened up yet. And we see a beautiful purple flower down towards the bottom. I thought that was really cool because I like when these books actually match the season they're supposed to be set in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's both subtle, you know, deep, interesting, but something kids can get. Oh, yeah. A flower is going to pop out soon.
0: Right. So I was like mad at Molly in this scene because it seems wildly insensitive to ask a young English girl to play bomb shelter upon arrival in your home. But then I was kind of thinking like, okay, but how would she have known about this? How what would she have as sort of baseline knowledge about what Emily's life is like? And I don't really have an answer to that question. We've not seen a scene in which Molly reads the newspaper or there's like no culture in their house of like, hey, kids, you know, kind of educate yourself about what's going on in the war. So in that case, was it common then for parents to try to distract their children from the realities of war so they wouldn't worry more about the father or were they encouraged to kind of because in school they're doing geography lessons and she points London out on the map. So like they are learning some things. But in what, in what sphere of her life is knowledge of other children's experience of this same were deemed useful or helpful?
1: I think even if you were to think of the 1990s context, I think a lot of it would have honestly been pretty trite unless you had mm-hmm. family, right? Unless you had people that you knew or that you were connecting to, I think a lot of this would have been package for them. But you also hear from her peers who are reading Life magazine, right, who have those references and those visuals. But I think then and now, I think a lot of the real atrocity of the war was kept from people. Mm -hmm. And I think the focus particularly on the bomb shelter, I think part of what the author and part of what the team was kind of hinting at was the obsessive culture that is generated around sheltering in place over the next decade or so. Mm. Right, like I, I think they're kind of anticipating. Molly playing at this is actually also very sad. It's very similar to the ways that children now have started thinking on their own of strategies to avoid school shooters. It's so in her mind that this should be normal you know, she is a little bit annoying in these scenes, but when you look at it just at, you know, like slightly different angle, her mom should be kind of worried that that's what she thinks play is because it's clear that she's trying to work out things that she's hearing half truths about. And maybe there is something cathartic and useful to that. Um, But her mother saying, you know, playing bomb shelter isn't a reality for Emily living in a bomb shelter is a reality for Emily it shows that Molly is hearing about this so much that she thinks oh this is how I should play
0: yeah but I think too there's also that privilege that I think we're going to map across the book Mm -hmm. which is that living in Illinois they also Ricky and others Rick I don't want to dismiss his rebranding um (laughs) You know, we're noting, like, obviously we're we're in a blackout drill, but this isn't real. Like, this is not a real Mm. threat for us. So even though, like, you're right, like these drills are becoming part of the rituals of their lives and like this increasing notion of like a foreign invader or attack that's different than maybe their parents would have known. You know, at the same time, it's like they're also carrying this privilege of like, but we're so landlocked and we're so, you know, internal that we we're not that we're not susceptible. Like, this isn't really for like about us. And instead, Molly says, like, yeah, when we know about blackouts in advance, my mom makes a thermos of hot chocolate. So it like becomes this moment of like family togetherness and not really even, you know, a real threat of safety
1: yeah, and i I think there are people who have had a range of experiences of times where they've had to be, I mean, obviously, it happened on the news literally a day before we recorded this podcast, right? Like people being forced to shelter in place for their own safety. But I think that, you know, people around our age, it's like post nine eleven, I remember the nature of drills changing significantly in my lifetime like, the way that people assessed threats. I remember the day that they announced that we would no longer have access to the building and we were locked in. And those are things that are still, you know, I went to a very privileged school. I had a generally, like, incredibly safe childhood, right? But I think the way that you grow up with these things, I do think it it tells sort of on the culture that Molly says, like, this is how I play.
0: Yeah. And I think, too, I don't know if we want to get into it right now, but I think the framing of the story itself i'm wondering if it's sort of like the story is mirroring the context that produced it which is mm-hmm. wanting to keep american girl readers at a remove from actual issues that are would still be relevant both in 1944 and in 1987, namely things like anti-Semitism or racism or things that would have shaped maybe different choices in this text, namely to why is the only refugee we're getting an English girl?
1: I think also it's very telling when we think about these being produced in the 1980s that the Cold War isn't over, right? And and you could right. argue that it's still not over, that you, know, you could argue many things about it, but particularly the authors who wrote in this first cohort, they would have grown up at the peak of duck and cover culture, containment culture. So you think of the world that Molly is growing into and will continue to grow into. I think she's emblematic of a culture in America where she understands on some level that a lot of threats are not imminent to her and yet they're never ending. They're saturated into her culture. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. But I think, too, it's sort of like she gets that there are these constant threats, but she also has this abiding faith in her own exceptionalism to rise above them. And that's both, I think, emblematic of how American Girl as a series imagines girlhood, like you can overcome anything, but also how they imagine what it means to be an American citizen.
1: Yeah. And I also totally agree with you that it's a very, it's a very safe choice in some ways to make Emily Bennett the primary or perhaps still only representation of what being a refugee looks like, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, because we were talking off mic, too, about kind of how the the periodization of this doesn't really track with what was going on with actual efforts to move refugee children to the United States or, in the case of England, to a Commonwealth country for the remainder of the war. Um, there was a group, Children's Overseas Reception Board, um, that matched English children with Commonwealth countries for the most part and an American counterpart organization that helped to bring some children to the United States as well. So presumably, you know, Emily would be part of this or a, a similar group. There was also private groups funded by Kodak and other American companies that would try to, like, relocate children of their employees as well. And in all of those cases, it most of the efforts were focused on 1941 or earlier when the bombing in England mm-hmm. was actually quite terrible and all the destruction that Emily describes likely happened. But after 1941, you know, there was a real shift and most of the war was taking place in continental Europe. So those efforts were sort of in decline. So it's very strange that in 1944, we see Emily coming to the United States.
1: Yeah, I consulted Sarah Sundin's blog and she writes historical novels and has great day by day coverage of the war. And she wrote a piece about April 18th, 1944, and how that was the last air raid on London and the end of what they called the Little Blitz. What I think is interesting, though, too, is around that time, so notably 420 is Hitler's birthday, as many people know, um, the RAF was dropping a ton of bombs on Germany. So leading up to a climax on 420 1944, um, they actually had a record setting air raid where they dropped um, 40,000 4,500 tons of bombs in time for his birthday, and that had been preceded by, um, honestly, a a truly staggering amount of bombing in Germany, France, and Belgium.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, with all that in mind, it is sort of hard to figure out this choice um, of periodization other than to fit with the brands like you know, four, emphasis on years ending in four, um, but also hard to understand why we're not getting a Jewish refugee because mm. much of these organizations were focused on relocating Jewish children. And, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was or was involved with these groups and, you know, obviously- that would have been really, I think, significant, both for representing that history, but also for speaking in the 1980s to the importance of not forgetting these events and for thinking about anti-Semitism. And once again, we see kind of a pivot in this series to not talk about the Holocaust in some way. Yes. And I think that that's really significant. And it's actually it's a huge bummer. It makes me really sad, especially in, in light of events yesterday yesterday. Seeing a man wearing a sweatshirt with um, the slogan that greeted residents at Auschwitz, he wore that as he stormed the Capitol yesterday. And instead, we get this story that also doesn't really make sense if it is an English child.
1: Yeah. And I worried that I missed it. Right. I worried that I missed the exact reason why she was coming there. Right. How did this person end up in this household? Because I was curious what kind of work that would do to explain something greater. Right. And much in the same way that Nellie is kind of part of a, a rescue narrative where Samantha just really likes her. So her life is better because her family chooses to quote unquote, rescue her. Um, I really was having a hard time finding much about English daughters of doctors ending up in middle America. And the reality is both the United States did accept more refugees than other places, but the numbers are still very low. The The numbers are still not significant. The Holocaust Museum in D.C., um, Acknowledges that there are different numbers, but it's about 180,000 to 220,000 over a 12 year period, which is mm. not a lot, honestly. If we're looking at, let's say, about 200,000 over 12 years, that is not really a large reception of refugees, especially when you contrast that with the efforts that people make in the wake of the war to get German and specifically Nazi scientists into the US and other places as part Mm. of the Cold War. It's like there was an infrastructure as soon as people really wanted to do this and wanted to deal with this and they're making deals. But I think part of what's disappointing from our perspective as grown women reading these books looking for even a hint and and again maybe i missed it of some small reference to like there being an agency or even if molly was part of a church right like some hint i think by contrast people think we're we're asking too much of these books connie porter did that beautifully in Addie. As an adult, you see the infrastructure of how things are happening in her life. You understand the slave market. You understand her church and how beneficent groups are making things happen and her role in it. So I don't think it's asking too much. I think it's just different, right? Like they're not showing it. Yeah,
0: and I think, too, there's something about this where it's like, it would have been both historically accurate and helpful to young girls in the eighties or nineties reading this to see, as you're saying, a representation of what collective action and mutual aid looks like mm-hmm. and why it matters. Because I think a major critique people have of now is that there's been such a focus on the individual for, you know, big structural reasons, like a turn to neoliberalism and economics and culturally like a move away from collective responsibility. If you've watched the latest season of The Crown, that was like one of the major themes um, and Margaret Thatcher's, um, Britain. But I think, so keeping that context in mind, like how beautiful would it have been to have a moment like in Addie's books where you see Mm. Molly being part of this community where she understands like, yes, I owe something to other people in my life, you know? And it's not just, I need the best birthday for me. What I want for my (laughs) birthday goes. And because actually the ending doesn't really satisfy me, we'll have to get back to the pot here in a second, but... (laughs) I mean, she's not actually asked to sacrifice anything. She gets probably everything she wants. And actually, Val takes a pass on actually having to resolve that because we're not actually invited to the party. We hear a hell of a lot about this birthday party. We
1: don't actually get to go. Yes, I was thinking again about her party in relationship to both um, Kirsten and Felicity's, right? So different authors. But um, honestly, the fun of you know, the guitar and and all those elements and felicity and then the beauty of the friendships that coalesce around Kirsten's birthday, literally my top note, not getting to live the birthday party. It's and problem once again, just like with other holidays that we've been through on the the Molly McIntyre roller coaster, Molly is all about process. She is a slow to, you know, to gear up. So whether it's the dinner in the opening scene of the series, we're getting a lot of detail, a lot of hurry up and wait with the turn up. We go to Christmas, a lot of, you know, build up, not a lot of actual holiday scene. We are robbed of a birthday. I read several reviews where women said, why did I remember her birthday party? Because it didn't happen.
0: Yeah. Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And it's almost like, you know, like, did we all remember it? Because our desire is so strong. It just like infiltrated our imagination. And we were like, yes. Like, it's sort of like there's that thing when you're watching a movie where you're watching a scene and it cuts to another scene that connects to it. But like, if there was a missing action in between, you sort of like, I don't know if you've ever had this, but you briefly imagine like, oh, this must have happened before this next scene. I had that experience reading this book where I'm like, "Um," because we went right from that to like a truly shocking peek into the past, which we'll get into. But this book at the end, I was like, I'm sorry. Wait a second. We have time for like truly an insane like war of words between these two gals and all of this workout over like what's the menu of the birthday party, which like I will say matters to me. But yes. Then it's like, okay, we work up to this. It's the morning of the birthday. We see what shocking gifts we get. We'll get into that. And then the book just ends.
1: The book ends before the party, which I don't care for. And I also don't like that because there's quite a few scenes where I think the young girls are being unkind about Emily and there aren't really consequences for that. And I think as a tool, right, to learn how to be a good friend, Molly kind of bullies Emily and they fight over decision after decision about how this party is going to run. And I'm just going to say it. Molly, being a tourist, has an idea of what this party is. And really, though, like she's really not actually open to new information about (laughs) how a British princess party would go. There's a central problem that drives a lot of the plot in this book, which is Emily imagines that all American girls are like Shirley Temple, and Molly thought she was getting an actual princess. And so they're both disappointed, but Molly is louder.
0: Molly is louder. I feel like I can't actually engage your Taurus kind of heat because I'm married to one and like that could be awkward for me in my life. But I will say that, you know, being stubborn is a trait like that tracks like story checks (laughs) out um, in a very lovable way. But I think we need to get... So, like, we're in the blackout. Like, they play bomb shelter. It doesn't go great. She starts to go to school with Molly. All the girls are disappointed in who Emily is. It's it's also a war of personality types because Molly's clearly an extrovert and Emily's an introvert. And basically, everyone pathologizes being an introvert in this book in a way that's sort of insane. So, yeah, okay, she stays to herself, whatever. People are like, we're disappointed. Then there's this blackout and Emily starts to cry in the corner of the basement. And Molly's like, what's the problem? Like, when we know about this in advance, my mom makes hot chocolate. Like, it's good times. And Molly's like, once again, chronically not reading the situation, not being an empathetic friend. Like, there's a lot of crimes against friendship in this book. Like, not empathizing, not having compassion. The thing that brings them together is in the basement, they both realize they like the princesses, Elizabeth and Margaret. That this is a common interest. And in fact, Emily has brought with her a scrapbook she keeps focusing on Princess now Queen Elizabeth and Princess Margaret. So this leads to them starting to dress alike. They go put on identical outfits every day and walk an imaginary dog. Yeah. I mean, that part I was like, Val, did we need the imaginary <laughs> dog in this? Like. <sighs> That was a lot. But like, that's the thing that brings them together. Then they realize it's Molly's birthday coming up. And the mom's like, Molly, like, we gonna what are we going to do for your birthday week? Basically. And you're like, I guarantee you, Rick does not get a birthday week. Like, I guarantee oh, no. you, Mrs. McIntyre is not like, Ricky, like, what do you want to do for your birthday party? She's probably like, oh my God, Rick, it was your birthday two months ago. Like, I'm so sorry. Totally spaced. But like there's such hype. And then Molly, this is the only moment of generosity or this is how it's presented is says Tamley, you haven't gotten to celebrate your birthday for years. Why don't we share my birthday party? Yeah.
1: And it is kind of primed for disaster because, you know, as a way to, I think, better explain and draw out how children's birthday parties of this class and background would be. There's like a constant tete a tete where Emily says, Well, in Britain, we would have lemon cake. Molly's like, Yuck, right? So, like, Molly has this kind of interest in the royals, but really doesn't want to learn how British people might do anything else. And when she hears that she would have to take her tea a certain way, she's not interested. Where I do think, you know, this book and others that we've read kind of tell on themselves accidentally is this is exactly how multiculturalism worked in the 80s and 90s like the way that some people will say like, well, I love to go to X because I love to try Thai food. And then they get back in their very expensive car to wherever they live, right? 100%. It's like, well, I like to be a tourist and I like to experience this. Because when Emily tries to really open up about why these things would be meaningful to her and even her understanding of the royals, Molly is like, yeah, that's not what I pictured. I'm not really interested. She's like,
0: "Mm, I don't think so. Like they do wear tiara's, because that's a sticking point where Molly's like, (laughs) obviously in preparation of our birthday party, we need to make our birthday crowns. And just says this as like, this is assumed, everybody does this, which I read this as a Leo and I was like, oh my God, why haven't I made a birthday crown? I'm (laughs) embarrassed for myself. But, you know, basically Emily kindly pushes back and sort of says like, they don't actually wear tiaras. Like they wore one at their father's coronation, but that's it. They dress like you and me every day, basically. And Molly won't accept that. But I think you're right that there's something to this where the food is where it comes out. And this is where like food history is interesting is like, Emily says, if you want a tea party, you actually have to have tea, which is not a shocking idea. But Molly rejects this out of hand and is like, well, obviously we're all gonna have hot cocoa because none of us drink tea. And Emily's like, no, we have to have real tea. And then Molly drops on us that at her birthday party, she typically has bread, no, wait a second, hot dogs, milk. I forget what else, but those were the things that jumped out in my mind. Maybe peanut butter and jelly, something like that. And Emily kind of turns up her nose and is like, we have tea sandwiches. Like, you cut the crust off. And she's like, well, what's on that? And she's like, watercress and meat paste. Now, let me just pause here and say meat paste, you know, does give me agita and makes me think about like Upton Sinclair energy and also an Agatha Christie in which somebody murders someone by poisoning the meat paste. In which case, like, you have that coming to you. And if somebody out here listens and loves meat paste, I guess I apologize. But I'm just saying, like, I don't fault Molly for bumping up against meat paste as a problem.
1: No, and it's sort of interesting to see them having this very kind of adult conversation back and forth where then they bring up having the bread and butter and Molly says it will have to be margin margarine. It's rationed because also I think Molly is used to having Guilford do all of this, right? Like take care of the shopping list where they give Molly a little bit more credit is Molly then kind of Molly has a freak out about the outfits um and so when emily says like well if we don't dress this way we won't look like the princesses molly says too bad
0: <sighs> she that's where she drew a line in the sand and she was like you know what because right before that she was like of course i need a birthday cake and ice cream and she's like emily's like no
1: well and her her subsequent realization molly realized that emily didn't have a party dress so then then she feels bad And where I also think like the parenting man is so hands off in this book, like the mom introduces a new family member and then is never available. She's gone. She's gone. She's out of here. So the family is dealing with my family used to always host exchange students. So, you know, you get what you get. Right. Both ways is all I'll say. Um, I mean, we had an exchange student. I know she doesn't listen. She couldn't stand me. And in retrospect, I completely understand why?
0: why
1: I was six. I was very annoying. Like, I'll just say that I found her fascinating. It was not mutual. Damn. She is now like a very top lawyer in Madrid. So, I mean, it's complicated. You're dropping in a new family member We had not been told that she literally lived in a mansion in the wealthiest neighborhood in Madrid. And so she would take like 45 minute showers. Well, we were already a a sizable family living in this home. And my dad had to say, you know, you can't. You can't do that like we have you know only so much in the hot water tank and uh we would set a timer and she would just go past it so uh, wow. all of that is to say like these these are complicated relationships that sometimes you didn't ask for and so when molly is getting this pushback she's like too bad but the mom does ultimately come through with matching outfits and what else does she deliver? Because I was I was shocked.
0: Well, okay, we can't go there until we have to revisit for one second the fight that they have before the presents yes. arrive. So, okay, I sort of am with Molly in wanting to put your foot down about having a birthday cake because I would insist upon that as well. Like, I have very strong feelings about that. And Emily coming back and saying, like, we could have lemon tart. It's like, uh, no, I will never forget. And I still have not gotten over the fact that my parents forced us to have lemon cake, like lemon filling cake at our first communion party, because I think my parents thought that was like fancier or that was like, you know, like it's more formal. And I hate lemon cake. Like oh. I could've I could have had chocolate cake that day is all I'm saying. Like I will never choose anything that's not that if it's available. So I understood that, that war between them. Is <laughs> all I'll say. So things start to go downhill because of a song, okay? Molly starts to sing my country tis of thee. At which point Emily starts to correct her and says No, that's not what that song's about. Now, this is after like a real like friendship montage where they're like going roller skating, sharing one pair of skates, which feels unsafe, but whatever. (laughs) She starts singing and then Emily says, no, 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 no. The words are God save our noble king. And Molly's like, it's not. It's our and Emily's (laughs) like, it's our national anthem. Like, I know what this is. And Molly's like, it's not. And Emily says it was a British song first. You Americans think everything in the world belongs to you. And Molly says, we do not... And Ricky tries to be the peacemaker, which is a shock. It doesn't really go anywhere. <laughs> yes, it is. So then Molly hears the radio and the news is on, and the news says battle weary Britons welcomed more American soldiers today. They call our boys, quote, the Yanks. The Yanks bring hope to these tired English people. Everyone knows it's up to these Yanks to save England and the world from Hitler's threat. At which point Emily yells back at the radio, that's not true. And everyone was startled because, of course, Emily, like, has been treated as, like, someone who doesn't speak. So she just speaks out. And Molly says, but it is true. England can't win the war without America. Our soldiers are stronger than yours. At which point Emily says, oh, you Americans, you always have everything your own way. You think you are so important. And Molly, without missing a beat, says, we are important. (laughs) And things go downhill from there to the point that Molly goes to bed. Mrs. McIntyre sends them to the room they share. I don't know how that resolves the fight. And basically is like, get out of my hair, go to bed. Molly falls asleep. Emily's crying. Molly falls asleep just thinking to herself, quote, I gave in and gave in and gave in to Emily. She thought, I'm not giving in anymore. Tomorrow I'll tell mom we're having a regular American birthday party and Emily's not invited. And then she just falls asleep. It's like, is she a
1: sociopath? Um, She's a Taurus, which again, I'm not saying all Taurus. I'm not, I know, like, you know, and I'm just going to say this also, I'm pretty sure Emily's a Libra.
0: What does it all mean?
1: What I mean, does it I all mean? I have some more birthday intel that I will share very shortly. Um, they're having this fight, though. I think at the crux of it, there's this issue that, like, Emily has been quite, quite literally deprived of a lot of things for years and is also now deprived of family and friends and is a strange environment. And I think there is a very real sense in which there are people who see kind of that middle-class American lifestyle as not just affluent, but excessive and Mm. at the cost of the rest of the world, right? Right. So all of the sacrifices that Molly is making that are proportionally difficult for her, Emily is thinking, girl, I did that when I was four. Right. Like, Like, she's she's literally
0: grown up with this.
1: A, a book I read recently that I really appreciated, it was fiction, but I thought it handled this smartly. It was called Secrets at Nanrith Hall, and it was a, a two-generation story that switched back and forth, a mother and a daughter, a mother dealing with World War One in England and a daughter dealing with World War Two in England, And it was an interesting dialogue of like the daughter trying to learn the truth of about her father and what happened during the war. Hmm. And what I think the author did really well was like the relentlessness of the war for people Hmm. in Britain. And there's a lot of characters who transcend both stories where it's like you see them one way in the part set in 1917. And by the 40s, they're so bitter because they've done this. Right. And it's
0: like, I think reflecting from Emily's perspective as well, like and Molly's, they've also grown up in the Great Depression. So it's like, you know, there's been so much privation, which, as you say, is entirely proportional. And if you think about privilege as both the ability or the number of choices you have available to you and your access to resources, Of course, Emily's going to look at Molly and say, like, this is a very privileged person. Yeah. Molly herself doesn't see because all she sees is her own deprivations. But just the very fact that she can put together like this seemingly elaborate birthday menu during wartime, even with rationing. You know, I'm sure that's really off-putting. And it it does bring up, too, like, when friends disagree, like, how do you work that out? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in their case, they just, I don't think, handle this in a healthy way. This is, like, another moment where I feel like the book could have modeled some healthier behavior in terms of, like, everyone disagrees sometimes, and certainly that comes up in friendships of any age. Um, but how do you handle it? And for Molly, it was to completely ignore her friend yes. and fantasize about how she was going to punish her. By you know, like totally reverting on the shared birthday plan and disinviting her from her own co-birthday party, which is actually like really mean. Yeah, but Meanwhile, like Emily's doing this very human thing. like she's feeling her feelings. she's crying, like she's gone through so much stuff that Molly doesn't even know about. But there's no like attempt to really communicate. Like, basically what ends up happening is they wake up the next morning and Mrs. McIntyre and Ricky come in and give them truly
1: what I would call a reckless wartime birthday gift of puppies. (laughs) I mean, we have seen this, though, with Samantha's birthday. It was like shock after shock. It
0: is shock after shock. And in a way, I was like, this is so fascinating that Val's idea of what reunion should look like takes place or entirely depends upon consumption. Like the thing that brings them together are things.
1: Well, and Emily herself recognizes that Molly is pretty materialistic, especially compared to her, and and kind of calls that out. I think what's challenging about Emily too, aside from the very mean characterization of her as not a true best friend in the AG fandom, oh my god! But there is that weirdness of this person lives in your house. You didn't know them a week ago. Your birthday is coming up. You're not relatives until it's brought out later. They don't know that they both have father's occupations in common. So there is kind of a... I'm not defending Molly, but I'm saying this person is kind of dropped into her life without a ton of guidance for how to be a support to her. And I think that's something that's kind of learned. Like in subsequent books, there's a lot built up around Emily. But here, Emily is really... I think about this a lot, like children who are made to feel as if they are an inconvenience through no fault of their own.
0: Mm, Yeah, I think it's not her fault. Not at all. And I think, you know, she has definitely what we would probably now call PTSD, like that moment in the blackout in the basement. And even when she comes downstairs initially and sees the bomb shelter like playscape, basically, I mean, I think she's entirely triggered by that, but also there's that reticence to own it. To Like you can't admit when something is upsetting to you, like right. she has to keep it all in. And certainly that's how, you know, American culture is also going to treat, teach people, especially servicemen, how to deal with their war experience, which is like, don't speak about it. Yeah. Don't seek out help for it. So I think, you know, there's a lot there's a lot going on here. And if friendship is defined by shared values and interests, all they really have in common is a shared <laughs> appreciation for Princess
1: Margaret and Queen Elizabeth. Okay, but that's also like true of us. I was going to no, say, I mean, it
0: is. It is a shared value with both of us, but I was upset as I texted you off mic before this that I just feel like Queen Elizabeth didn't really get her due on this book and like she actually offer a lot of wartime service and like nobody talks about it in this book. And that's upsetting. Like they're just depicted as two girls who like play with puppies and run around and wear tiaras when it's like this woman was a driver and a mechanic during the war. So like, I thank you to remember her work.
1: I need you to know that like part of our investigation of the historical truth of this book, I had I had to know like I had to know what was actually going on in this birthday and I have to share it with you.
0: Okay, please tell me.
1: Like, honestly, because there's always these things where it's like, why did they choose this, right? Like, and I, I'm still kind of befuddled by 1944. This birthday sure. is not an accident. Like, she looked at 420 and she thought, okay, that's Hitler. Like, obviously that Can't cannot that. occur. I want her to be a tourist for whatever reason. Here are the people, like, she's making an argument with this birthday. The people who share this birthday include Muhammad, Immanuel Kant, Madame de Stal. Uh, Nicola Sacco of Sacco and Vanzetti, wow. Vladimir Nabokov. Like, if you're telling me this isn't about the Cold War, I don't believe it. Wow. Robert Oppenheimer. Okay. I'm wow. not done. I'm not done. Elizabella of Castile. I put this in the wrong order. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Amber Heard and Jack Nicholson. But here's the coup d'etat. Sorry. Poor okay. choice of words. Vladimir Lenin. What wow. is Val trying to tell us about the Cold War by making Molly both an heiress to this very important Soviet birthday and a girl who plays bomb shelter. I see you is all I'm saying. Wow,
0: wow. I'm going to have to sit with this because it's just too much to take in at one time. But all I could think about at the end of this book is that Molly is going to bro- grow up as a person who herself like saves her money with her husband or you know roommate, we'll say. <laughs> to go on like finally like leave the country, go on an international trip and she comes back and they're like, "How oh my god, like you went to Paris. How was it?" And she's like, "I went to McDonald's. It was great." Like that's her move is like I don't want to go outside of my comfort zone and like, "Oh, it's not like our McDonald's, but you know, so, uh, it was okay. You know, it was fine." Okay.
1: I have been to McDonald's in Paris oh and London. I, knew I this have was done coming. That. I know. I know that you know that. So if Molly were with us, which I think she is on some level, she'd be 86. Wow! So the thought of Molly being part of a group that puts on tracksuits and travels the world—so I do think that her first husband Dale passed in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a heart condition, sure. and she cooked a lot of steak, so we didn't know. Like we didn't know about it. We didn't know. But I, I do think her roommate now, Dorothy. Like they love to travel to Ireland, but they don't they just find London too hectic. It's too much.
0: It's too chaotic. And, you know, they don't really they want to go in and offer some unsolicited opinions about what they think is happening on the ground in Ireland when they land. But they don't actually want, you know, anyone, no. any any foreign people to say a single thing about the United States.
1: No. And does Molly wear a red hat? Yeah, she does. We've we've you know, discussed
0: probably. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I also think, too, that she would have a granddaughter who grew up having an international day at school. Oh, yeah. For which she prepared her, you know, in her own unique way.
1: I do think that Molly would be willing to talk to any class at any time. She'd be willing to share her perspective, what she thought about (laughs) the good war or the great war as it is. Um, I do think that Molly could frequently be found at a Barnes and Noble and she would only buy history books by white men. And she'd be like, sorry, I just want the truth. Oh
0: my God. Okay. This actually <laughs> reminds me of something. So I cited the world war II museum on this show, like a couple episodes ago, come to find out like Allison, that's really bad. I didn't know.
1: Mary, and did you know did it was
0: like founded by Stephen Ambrose? That's how I got there. Like Molly might want to read his books. I don't know. But like, I didn't
1: know okay, we did not coordinate this. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Okay, So we on our show account, we now follow an Instagram account called at dismantle wwiim so okay, that's great. how you can find it it's dismantle the world's war ii museum we we were not aware of allegations brought forward and truths brought out by staff who work at the world's war ii museum about systemic racism and other problems mm-hmm. we were not aware of that a listener directed us to that account we read all of the posts i'm very grateful that someone sent us that. We were telling everyone to go give them yarn. We did not know. We yeah, know now. We know
0: now. We know better. So there are,
1: there are serious problems there. There are different ways that staff have asked for support that you can learn about on their Instagram, which I think is really important. Something we weren't aware of was the extent to which people are talking about the World war two museum as basically a piggy bank for rich white men and a white supremacist project that has hurt communities who live nearby. So we were not aware of that. Now we are. So definitely check that out.
0: Yes. And Stephen Ambrose, famous for plagiarizing an entire page of one of his books from someone else's book and claiming, quote, he just, you know, it came to him in a dream, probably from having read that other book before. And he just, you know, it was in his consciousness. He just didn't remember that, you know, it's like weird that you remember an entire page of someone else's book word for word and not remember where you remembered it from. It's like strange.
1: So, Mary, if he was someone that, you know, was giving birth in the time of Molly, I would buy it because this was the era of twilight birth. I'm going to be honest with you. This peek into the past was so unexpected. I don't even know if we can go there because it just shocked me page after page. It was like childhood was better. Like everyone is giving birth in hospitals. Both of those things are not objectively true.
0: No, it was this, this peek into the past. I don't know if it was because it was birthday theme. They chose to take us fully on a life cycle journey of like a girl Molly's age, like from Molly's era. We open with a photo of parents staring at newborn babies through the like glass of a hospital, you know, like those famous scenes. And we end with like truly a shocking pivot at the end. And I guess we'll get there, but yeah I think I really bumped up against the presentation, or certainly the the progress narrative that we get about what maternity care was like, and how kind of like the history of maternity hospitals and whatnot that we're getting here that like being born at this time, you had like the healthiest entry into the world,
1: so what's troubling too, just on a just a logistical plane? Being born in the 1930s was not a great time for many reasons, right? So the 1930s and 1940s, a lot of these practices actually changed considerably in that period because of the fact of the Great Depression and the war, Right, and I think what was kind of strange. There is a mention that people were kept away from babies in the hospital, but part of that was also still a holdover of recognizing that women often need to, to convalesce, that women need breaks and need rest. So you can read different books. Um, I recommend *Lying In*, which is a really good history of mm-hmm. childbirth. But y- you can read different data. You can read different evidence. But also, this idea that like everything is just coming up roses and Molly is going to have a perfect vaccine card. Molly's going to be in her 20s before she gets a polio vaccine. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's like this weird. So, if you read anything in the history of maternity care and childbirth, you get this sense that it's still grounded in a lot of debates we're still having about, you know, like the options or choices women should have as they give birth, whether and a lot of these histories take it upon themselves to take a stand about whether it was better to have a child at home or in a hospital and when that pressure when that shift happened like when women were actually forced or pressured to have children in hospitals and i think that a lot of that conversation gets kind of wrapped up in 1980s era maybe a little earlier the sense that like women are also pressured when they think about any of these life cycle options of like well you can have it all like yeah you can have your baby in the hospital and you can have the baby stay in the room with you so that you're almost pretending you had it at home and like you're having that immediate connection you know never mind the fact that like maybe it will affect how much sleep you get right after you have a child like the sciences has changed quite a bit even in a couple of decades and it's still like major differences of opinion but You know, like it used to be that women gave birth at home. Then there was a shift to um, having elite women or middle class women give birth in the hospital and normalizing that in large part to financially make lying in hospitals possible. But in order to do that, so it's like they had to appear very scientific and sterile and different than home. And then suddenly, and we're living in this now, like there's this movement to make hospital or maternity wards look like home again. Yeah. So it's like all these weird things, but the peek into the past ends with them saying, and a girl Molly's age would be an adult by the time she was done with high school. And then she would have to make some choices. She could either go to college or she could get married or, like, maybe she could do both.
1: Yeah. And it's like, will she go to college, get a job, get married? Is she going to do it all? And it's like, I know you read Betty for Dan. Right. <laughs> Did she? Like, I, like, where this goes is not good.
0: Like, this isn't, yeah, it's like, this is not a success story. It's like, Val, I think, though, is ending with that note of, like... <laughs> She could have it all like she could go have a job. She could get married if she wanted. She could go to college. But it's like one actually in presenting those options, you're actually showing that her options were limited. You're erasing the fact that women didn't have those options or that having it all, having any of those options or some combination thereof actually doesn't end well for, you know, women for a series of reasons that Betty and other gals get into You have to wonder, it's like, was Val ever in a consciousness raising group? Like, Val, what are
1: you doing? Well, I mean, to your point, I mean, I really think that peek into the past, especially, is all about 80s culture wars and really not about the 40s. Because when I was doing research on statistics to track the percentage of women who gave birth in hospitals in the 30s relative to other periods, there was a lot of investigation into that in the 1980s, partially mm. as a backlash against home birth. And you see the same thing with formula. There's an emphasis here on the fact that women were encouraged to use formula. Um, and I'll just give my own family as an example. I'm an 80s baby. Um, my grandmother and like her sisters were having children in the 40s and 50s. They, they thought that if you weren't using formula, you were totally destitute. And then by the 1980s, breastfeeding was really encouraged for a lot of women. Mm. So these things, like, they really are in relationship to each other. Like you're saying, it's not mm. just one or, or the other.
0: Also, do we get a reference to Twilight Sleep? Because that was the real game changer. Like, that was ultimately yes. how they got middle class women in hospitals to deliver babies. Because they were like, hey, listen... Whew, you want to go to sleep and wake up with a baby like come on into this hospital it's like can we get that back and can i just have it for like dental cleanings basically
1: i think it didn't end well and i think it's also because we were saying i think that's how Stephen ambrose claimed he wrote what he did oh
0: right he was like yeah i got some twilight sleep he's like i just
1: got a little
0: <laughs> i just keep thinking about that there's an episode of mad men where they show it
1: yeah, and Betty Betty is not well. What I think that did think. also show, like relative to the period, is that men really, unless they were in a medical role, like didn't have a place in those births.
0: Right. Yeah, or siblings either. Like they had to right. stay away for days at a time. Like, we're not missing Rich, though. Trust me. Or Rick, Rich, Ricky. God only knows what he would end up as. (laughs) You know, Allison, I I don't know if now is the appropriate time, but like, I also did some research for this episode that I'd love to share with you. Yeah,
1: absolutely. You know,
0: history of birthdays is something that always interests me. And I'm going to want to ask your history of your birthday. So while I'm talking, if you want to think about, I want to hear about your best kid party. Like, what happened? What was your best children's birthday party that you ever had or attended? It doesn't have to be yours. Um. Okay, but in the meantime, I was doing some research because I wanted to know, like, what you know, what is the baseline, like, middle class white girl birthday party that's happening in the night, late 1930s, early 1940s? And so I jump, I jumped onto Chronicling America, which I love to use, as I've said before on this show. Anyone can use it. Okay, so as it turns out, um, uh, girls could expect in some places to have their birthday party written up in the newspaper. And these are not like Kardashians. These are like average gals. So here's an article I found from 1938 in the Lexington Advertiser. Betty Jean Ellington, love that name, was an honoree at a party Saturday (laughs) afternoon when her mother... Um, entertained for her on her eighth birthday her friends gathered at her house at 2 30 many games were played and it lists Jean grafton and some other one won the prizes in the contest of pinning the hat on santa claus after good after a good time was had by all mrs ellington served jello and birthday cake to the following children and then it lists them by name Immediately after that, I see another listing or detail in which also pinning the tail on the donkey was played. I guess that was a popular game at the time. A booby prize was given out, as well as a prize to a boy and a girl. A beautiful birthday cake, decorated in red and white roses, made and was given as a gift, admired by all. Six red candles added to its beauty. Dixie Cup's birthday cake and candy in the shape of Santa Claus were served. Everyone was given a miniature Santa Claus as a favor. And it lists all the guests by name, um, which I thought was actually really interesting because I thought, I actually thought the only birthday party description I would find of a child would be Shirley Temple. And I did find mm. plenty of those. Um, and I'll read part of one in a second, but it was really interesting that you could see kind of like average air quotes. Cause it's, you know, always tempered because it's usually white middle-class people, but you know, these average descriptions of life. And in fact, my grandmother's first um, entry into the newspaper was when she was in college and she was written up in a Western newspaper as having a friend come visit her on her break mm. from college. So it's kind of like weird. I wouldn't write like, and my best friend Allison's like coming to stay with me like that. <laughs> the, the Hartford Current doesn't care about that, but you could first like, and I, so there's something kind of lost in newspapers today that we don't have these records of like moments in everyday life, um, at least for some, but. One of my favorite things I found was in 1936, there was a write-up of Shirley Temple's birthday. And it actually speaks to the book because in the book, um, Emily schools Molly on the appropriate language you should use if you're writing out a birthday party invitation. Yes. And she basically writes it out in the way that I've always understood, like, traditional wedding invitations to be written, which you invoke your parents first and say, like you know mr and mrs whoever like ask the honor of your pre- like presence at the birthday party of Allison Harrex, and you're like whoa this is intense like it's an <laughs> 8 year old's birthday party But she actually, they cite Emily Post in how you should address birthday party invitations in 1936 for Shirley Temple, but presumably for all. They consulted Emily Post, who says, the appropriate um, etiquette is to write, Dear Mary or Johnny, will you come to my party on blank at blank o'clock? It's going to be my birthday, and it will be no fun at all unless you are with me affectionately, your name. So it's like she's actually telling you that manners or etiquette is to guilt your potential guest
1: I think so much of this too has just become like people wouldn't turn to newspapers for it because it's become standardized like you can buy a pack that has this written out
0: yeah but also like I think so many of them are now Evites, like something that was different even about our childhood versus like kids now is that I remember like so carefully printing my invitations to my birthday party. My handwriting is terrible, so it was like a real exercise. But um, now I'm sure maybe it's like an Evite or something. I don't know, parents can weigh in on this. But in the Shirley um, Temple article, it's really amazing because they talk about how like there's this huge effort to celebrate her birthday, but all she wants is a party with 30 of her fellow kid friends. And they describe this very elaborate cake that they're making for her. This, again, this is like during the Depression. So then we get this description. Hidden in the cake are exciting hints of the future. There is a gold ring for a happy marriage and a gold thimble to warn against becoming an old maid. A common copper penny is in there also to bring good luck. And then there is a dime to signify wealth. And I'm like, what are don't the dental put bills? What are the don't dental bills of this
1: cake? No, unless it's a king cake, don't, be put, don't put stuff in my snack. That's what I'm saying.
0: It's like, I don't, this shouldn't be like an exercise in like me worrying about my dental care. Cause as you know, like I can't, going to the dentist is not my thing, but yeah, that that was a bit triggering. And then lastly, and I'll put this in, I'll put all of these into the episode notes, but there is a link, um, to a birthday cake recipe from 1945. So it's right around the end of the war actually too, um, from Crisco, a Crisco ad. So if anyone's interested in baking a historic birthday cake, we will make that happen for you. It has lemon in the icing, so I don't know that I will be making this cake for mm. me. But if someone has a historic chocolate cake they want to share, I would love to try it. So there you go, Allison. But what is your favorite birthday party from your childhood or that you attended?
1: So I, you know, I, I have a lot of mixed bag memories because a lot of them were activity based, and I didn't like the activities. So I don't, I don't really wow. have super pleasant memories with those you know, like gymnastics and t-ball and, and, and whatnot and having to be roller skating. I have to say Uh-oh. probably objectively my best like pre-18 memory. Uh, when I was a teenager, my brother moved away uh, for for after graduate school to start working as an editor in Illinois, land of Molly McIntyre. And my family flew him home as a surprise. And it was actually really exciting and so I think that was probably one of my better birthdays because I liked sharing my birthday with him and I never expected him to come home. So I Aww. think that was probably it. Not to be like That's that sweet. weird Folgers commercial. It wasn't like that. But <laughs> I really didn't expect him to come. How about you? Um.
0: So I had a lot of birthday parties that I didn't really appreciate at the time that when I was growing up, it was very cool to have them at places like Super Club and that might be a regional reference. But do you know what that is where it's like, you yes. go and like exercise and it's supposed to be a party. It's like my nightmare. But my parents were always like very into we would have it at home and we could just have a couple friends over. And there was always a craft and there was always a theme. And Grandma Fluffy, who obviously I was very close to, was getting like was very invested in these occasions. And so I had a party that was a tea party where we had our American Girl dolls and my grandmother went to Christmas Tree Shop, another like local faves still love Christmas Tree Shop and got these like doll sized straw hats that then the craft was that we decorated them, which was very fun. Wow, well, we've
1: we've been through it today with Molly. You know, I mean, I need to
0: like go make some cake myself. Like I need a therapeutic bake good at this point to get through Me what too. we just went through. Like Me I too. like honestly, and I know he's kind of started with this, how is Emily supposed to take this dog home with her? Like I'm really worried about this.
1: I think that dog is going to a farm. <gasps> no. She's I'm already just... lost a dog in the blitz. Okay, but that dog is going to go to a happy farm. I know that when we pick up next, Molly's at camp.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Get your landlines ready because we're calling a club and Molly is going to camp. Oh, my
0: God. Can you even imagine? I can't even prepare myself for how extra she's about to be at camp.
1: I'm pretty excited about it.
0: I'm excited. I hope, you know, like, she's a better friend in the next book. You know, that's my wish for her as our fave. Like, come on, Molly. Like, pull it together. I don't know what she's going to do if Mrs. Mac's not around or Mrs. Guilford
1: she can do it Guilford is secretly running the camp and she probably is because she CIA. wasn't in
0: this book so she probably like was heading out early to set up and maybe she refused to appear because of how she appears in her portrait in the vignette like honestly she was the most wronged by that just I check agree. it out listeners that's all I'm gonna say
1: Mary if people need to send you like updates on Guilford as they learn of them through foyer requests wow
0: Powerful. how should they do that Please, you know, don't redact anything and send it to me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney one, two, three. Now, Allison, if people need to get at you with, you know, all kinds of birthday, you know, theories about Tauruses, like any Taurians listening who feel wronged by your comments want to
1: reach out to you, like, how would they find you? I recently had a great exchange with a Gemini who was like, I understand So you can find me at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and Twitter. And we also love when you follow the show to get updates and and see different things we're posting about. We're at a girl's pod on Twitter and we're American girls podcast on everything else. You can also visit our website to find out all the other ways that you can contact us. And thanks
0: to all of our Patreon supporters. Um, We look forward to our episode this month. Um, which we've not yet recorded, but will. And last month, of course, we read Mariah Carey's autobiography. Our Discord channel is very lively on there, that community. We create channels as people request them. We recently created a channel for all of our expat listeners, Mm -hmm. which is very active and cool. We also have a Bachelor Fantasy League happening. It's not too late to join us um, and you can make your picks for the whole season and see how they fare. So lots doing. Thanks so much for everyone. Who supports the show and supports us by listening? We really do so appreciate it. You know, I don't want to be like Molly and not be grateful.